Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey family, it's Menachem. Welcome to episode seven of our third season of Consciously, OG Wisdom, Hope Dealers, Carriers of the Light. Today we have a real treat, Rabbi Yaakov Yisrael Wengland. I first met Rav Wengland when I visited a class at my daughter's seminary. I was really struck by his, uh, by his energy and what he brought to the table. He did a, a guided meditation reflection in the class. And being somebody who does that, I was blown away by his talent, by his wisdom, by what he brought to the table. So who is Rabbi Wengland? Before coming to Israel, Rabbi Y.Y. Wengland graduated with a BA cum laude in history and literature from Harvard University with a JD from UCLA School of Law, where he was a member of the Law Review and a lead performer in the law school musical all three years. After law school, Rabbi Wengland joined the Manhattan law firm of Paul and Weiss as a corporate associate, working in their mergers and acquisitions subgroup. The potential of growth towards becoming a partner was tangible, but Rabbi Wengland ventured to put on hold that success in order to learn more about his Jewish roots. He moved to Jerusalem, where he started taking introductory classes at Eisha Torah, a yeshiva that educates young Jewish men who were raised in non-observant homes about Torah-observant Judaism. After years of hard work and growth, Rav Wengen became a part-time, then full-time staff member of a yeshiva called Lev Yisrael. Soon, he was named Director of Education and eventually Executive Director. Three years later, he determined that it was time to hit the road and bring his package of talents and experiences to North America. Since, he has been an in-demand guest speaker for college campuses and community-based outreach programs. Wangland is also a popular teacher at several seminaries and yeshivas in Yerushalayim and its environs, and he lives with his family in Ramat Beit Shemesh. I'm so excited to bring you Rav Wangland. Hey, Rabbi, how you doing? Hashem, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. So grateful to have you. So, uh, so as, uh, as the audience knows, for those who have heard before, the, um, the format of this interview series is that we ask a diverse array of, um, of individuals who are, you know, great people working on themselves and developing themselves and teachers and guides, uh, a series of seven questions. And we provide those questions to them ahead of time. So we've provided you with those questions and to really share a little bit of yourself, to get to know you a little bit on multiple planes, and then also to hear some of the you know, the concrete advice and guidance that you've, you know, learned along the way, becoming who you are. So I'm really grateful that you came down. So um, thank you so much. Pleasure. Uh, after an introduction that you gave like that, uh, especially about the, the meaningful meditation in the class back, uh, wow. Yeah, it was great. It was actually really, I was really taken. I, I do those kind of meditations in my work with, um, with uh, individuals in recovery. And your, your technique was really Incredible. It's very, very good. It's really, really good. I told my daughter after, I was like, he's very good. He's like the real deal. I can see that. The girls walk out and they're just like, you know, dinner time. I have no idea. <laughs> okay, I got to grease up the guests, give them some good compliments. Okay, so uh, so I asked you to think about some, in a little bit of back, we have, we got it some background info, but if you had to like, you know, sum yourself up a little bit or just introduce yourself to the to the audience, who who are you? Who am I? As my as my father-in-law to be said when he taught me, he came to see me when I was still at Torah, giving a class in their essentials program. But I'd already had sort of you know the beard and the pants growing out a little bit, not quite full out Hasidic by any means, but 
And he looked at me and he said later, he said, this kid's just an American punk who's like up on stage, you know, it's the same the regular guy. So I'm definitely, you know, the firm version of that, but, but uh, I try to kind of blend the, all, all the packages of experiences in my life to make sure that I'm still me and, uh, you know, and anyone in life really should hold on to the good and try to like work with the not so good or discard it or learn from it. So I'm definitely an American boy with, uh, but, but if you looked at me, you would never know it. So I try to be able to play both, have, have both of those, not play, but have both of them in my, in my experiential package. All right. So an authentic and real person. I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Being real with where I came from and real with where I'm trying to go. Amazing. That's great. That's great. That's awesome. Okay. So uh, some of the questions are geared towards getting to know you. And this is a little bit on a spatial level. You know, we operate within space and time. And I asked you to think about, you know, a place in the world that is uh, most meaningful to you, that, that is your favorite place, perhaps, or where you feel most yourself. Um, to use an example, the example I always use for Jews, you know, the old city of Jerusalem is always you know, an easy answer. It's so special to so many of us, but to even think about which stone in the old city, you know, which, what's that space that's kind of most powerful for you? Well, I'm, I'm going to go off the board and, and not go with the old city. Uh, it could be okay. that many, many years ago when I lived there, that would be the case, but it's, uh, it is still a little bit hard to get the old city. Uh, but, uh, so I have, I came with four, I'm sorry. Cause that's I great. decided to do sort of like, uh, yeah, I, I, it ended up being like, you know, a UK love cave thing probably a little bit too religious for most people, but uh, anyway, so I started off, I would say, believe it or else, um, one of the, uh, it just looks fresh, is uh, my salon, or we call it in Israel, or the, the dining room, <laughs> dining room, the little box in my Haredi apartment that has like a dining room table and a, and, a, and a sofa in it. So with Corona situation, it's not the place that it used to be. It used to be a place where I could have plenty of quality time by myself. Kids would be asleep, Kids were younger then, so they would be asleep, and uh, so I, and and the schedules weren't all you know out of, out of a red disarray. So I had kids asleep, wife asleep, quality time at night, quiet, darkness, peace, and uh, maybe a cool night air, and I could just be with myself and 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 be in in let's say a source state. With uh, I mean some of the other questions come into play. So that's I place number one. I can keep going. Or you yeah, can ask please. Me a question about that. No, no, okay, it's great. Go number Please. two. I'll go number two. Because there's nothing descriptive about my salon. Maybe you'll come for a Shabbos dinner and a, a meal, and you'll, and you'll, and, or even just during the week, and you'll, you'll, you'll start to feel this is where it all happens. It's like ground, this is like ground zero. This is a, that's like the Yud of Hashem's name. It's the core right there. Okay. There's really nothing here to ask right now, is there? Not yet. <laughs> okay. So now, uh, the next thing is, uh, is really probably... I think the most moving place for me, again, let's say other than the Koso, is um, is uh, now it's not religious. This is more religious. Is uh, the 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 Tzion, the the cover, the burial site of the the Baal Shem Tov, the Holy Baal Shem, the Baal Shem Kodesh in Nezbuz, Ukraine, which I'd read about and learned about and seen pictures of, but I was going to go there for the first time uh, a year ago with some of my uh, students from uh, Rachis Yerushalayim Shiva and. Uh, it was a religious experience, and then I was okay to go again with my wife and a couple of Tommy Dois uh, last uh, January, which seems like an eternity ago. And there's just something there. He's the he's the lightning rod, or the the the, the it's where it's all come down. And basically, people ask me ask me what kind of chassid I am, and usually even sounds like a joke, but I'm chassid the Baal Shem He changed the world. He saved everyone's life. Uh, some people know it, some people don't. And so that place just 
it's electrifying for me and it's very emotional for me and, and a great place for me to uh you know uncover myself in a very deep way is that is that do you do you do you associate that as as mystical like you know the the presence of the Balshemtiv is in his uh is in his teachings or in his followers or you know there's many ways of kind of connecting with the tzaddik. What is it about for you about being at the Sion, being at the burial spot? What do you think that that's like super rational or is there a specific reason that you think that that allowed you to connect in a certain way? Um, you could say both, right? Because because a person if you were if, being religious, it's spiritual. It's as you supernatural. But if a person wants to just say it's a psychological phenomenon, it's it's a it's a it's a, a concretization of all that, as you said, the Torah, the ideas, the the influence on my life, the transformative and transforming influences on my life that I've looked at books I've learned about over the many years, and then to go to that place where it's sort of a rep- as from a spiritual point of view, even the whole year you know it's not as your site, but there's a certain amount of I think spiritual reality energy. Of the neshama of the person whose grave site you're by, but certainly on a psychological basis, this just represents the 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 crystal uh, the concentration all that all that connection. But what happens is supernatural. I mean, even even person thought it was like psychological. You know, they ah, this this is the place that's important to me. You can ask my wife, you can ask my students. It's kind of almost literally nuts what happens to me there, in that the amount of just crying and and letting go. You know, I, I'm, I'm present, but that that's the quintessential out of body experience of of just of uh, of being feeling like you're not 100 percent in the grounded world. That would be, I think, it's a little more supernatural experience. So you're saying, like, if someone were coming from like a maybe a, a skeptical point of view of the supernatural or super rational aspect of it, and they say, well, it's a psychological association. You're saying that when it comes down to it, when you get to that space, when you've gotten to that space, something has occurred inside of you. That for you is something that says this can't just be, and this is what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm just kind of clarifying. You're saying this can't just be psychological. There must be something going on for me internally that's just beyond what could just be impact psychologically because I'm emotionally connected to this. I'd like to go with that because I think that you see, I, I, I see that the, the, the psychological aspect of my life have not brought me to that. Things that we, I could just say are purely psychological have brought me to feelings of high emotion, ecstasy, kind of types of feelings. But this, how, it just is hard to say that it could possibly be happening just because I'm tricking myself. Right, those are, those are interesting things because those are not things that you can, it's like trying to describe what, what a color looks like, you know, to another person. What blue looks like to me versus, I mean, it's very, it's, it can only be experienced by saying, listen, this is my experience. It's what I, this is what I've experienced. I hear what you're saying. You're giving a rational explanation for what occurred to me. But really, I experienced it as something different. This is, I experienced something that was elevated. Right, but it's not because, remember, it's built on if you want something to learn from, as opposed to just like, go to here, it's a magic button if you happen to relate to that spirituality. Right. Is, as you said, you learn the Torah, it, tra- it, transform, it transforms a person's life. Basically, the difference between psychology and spirituality be like this. Let's say a person has a mentor in his life. Uh, secular, fully secular, a mentor, a very deep, important mentor in his life, uh, 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 whatever, not, not a relative, teacher. Um, and that person, that mentor, the person studied by, learned by, was under that person's wing for 20 years may, and maybe more. And then the student has the opportunity to go to that mentor after the mentor's passed away, let's say, to that mentor's birthplace, to the, to the, to the homestead where that mentor was born. Now, from a spiritual reality, there's probably nothing going on there. 
So the only thing that the person would be is just like they walk through the house and they're saying, this is where he slept. This is where he read all of those books that gave him all that wisdom that gave me. This is where he did his art, whatever. So there, I don't know that a person, they would have a very intense experience and would maybe concretize and concentrate all of the learning they have. But to go to that level of sprawling themselves out, crying and crying and crying, you, you, why is there people that make a discuss whether that's psychology or whether there's none? It can only happen when you're at a grave site. There's a spirituality, the spiritual soul that's there pulling a person out of the physical world. Right, but that was your experience. That's what I'm yes. driving at. That's okay. So, so then you had two other places that you wanted to talk about. Right. So that. So then the next uh, is is my car. So we go back and forth. We have the the in, and then the 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 hey of Hashem's name is to receive the energies that Baal Shem experiences after I've taken it all in to like kind of like be able to receive her. And then the the my car. Um, I find this is a very popular male answer uh, when we're talking to people. Like people like the car. Uh, so uh, that's just another. It's, but it's not the stationary aspect. You know, actually going to sit in my car, making my office is actually very nice just to have, again, peace of mind. Um, and, uh, and also that if a person's driving in the car, there's a certain amount of motion and a certain amount of, you know, doing something, control. But yet at the same time, you have to go where the road goes. I mean, you get to the different like psychological pleasures of it. But it's the, again, that feeling of isolation yet progress. It's movement with a state of being with myself. So, and, and a sense of, although with the phones these days, you can be called any minute and texted any minute, but it's a place, again, of being with myself. Right. And, okay, Sam, what's the fourth? Fourth is really just a, a variation on the first, on the second one, which is that Baruch Hashem, there are lots of wonderful holy sites in the uh, Holy Land. And even though I am a, you know, an urban creature and have like a little bit of, you know, a New York fire and type A personality fire, but going up to the northern air to show where the air is more of the air and spas, let's really go to Meron. And the uh, Kavorim nearby also has that same, again, I would call it spiritual experience that that I can tap into being here in the Holy Land and experience that sense of connection to bigger things. Wow. So if, if, if you were going to draw together um, kind of a theme of what you're talking about, you're talking about within, within your experience of space, there's those spaces that are mundane that kind of give you that sense of personal quiet and where you can be with yourself and kind of be in touch with reality and then those bring you to those spaces where you're having spiritual experiences experiences that are beyond or connecting with energies that are higher than where than yourself right yeah uh, and the, the last thing is not just that he spoke that out so nicely and i was going to have this down as like a, a fifth level because this extra fifth level is any place i'm teaching which as you just said and described it so nicely is there's the in the being the 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 my my uh, my my car my 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 dining room my salon. Then there's the connecting, experiencing spirituality, and then really the, my favorite place in the world is as you kind of maybe felt when you were there that day is any place I'm teaching, mm. any place I'm meaning where you get to manifest that energy, both the being by yourself and then what you're receiving, and to and to share it, right? They say they say sometimes the spirituality is is most experienced when it's flowing through you as opposed to when you're receiving it. Uh, wow. Right. Fantastic. Okay. So, so the next, the next thing so, that I asked, we're done, right? what? We're done, right? we're done. That was, That's all we're good. Done. that was, that was great. That was really deep. We could go on for a long time about the UK Vubke. We could spend a long time on that, but uh, maybe a future episode, maybe a whole season. We could talk. You got to talk to your agent. Okay. So uh, I asked you to think about a specific folk story or a spiritual proverb 
that reflects you, something that you've drawn a guiding principle from, like what do you, and, and to share some of what you take from that, how, that, how that's been applicable in your life. So uh, for, forgive me for being Jewish and not having one answer. I tried to come up with had, had three again, different themes. One is, uh, uh, is uh, whatever, I'll just say for those of people who have a Jewish uh, religious background, yeah. that this changed my life, absolutely changed my life. Is, uh, it says in the, it says in the Pirkei Avos, the ethics of our fathers, um, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the second chapter, it says, a person needs to know what's above him, and he won't come to transgress. What does he need to know? That there's an eye that sees. In the Hebrew language, it says, and you won't come to sin. Know what's above you, and you won't come to sin. Which makes sense. Know what's above you. Someone's watching you. You've got accountability. You won't come to sin. So there's a nice board on that. We'll skip that for now. That has been given, brought down in the name of the Magen Mezrich, the main Talmud of the Baal Shem Tov, the main student. And also the, uh, the, uh, the uh, time of Elohim, who is the main student of, of the uh, Vilna Gon. And anytime you put them in the same sentence, you brought unity in the Jewish world, so that's good for the world. Right. In any case, uh, so the Baal Shem Tov came along and said, you know, that previous board said, don't just learn the words, know what's above you, and you won't come to sin. Da malamalamimcha is the word in Hebrew. Da malamalamimcha, know what's above you. But they translated it and it says, know that what's above is from you. Mm. What's going on in the spiritual realm is really from you. You're so important, and you're in a, your soul is so infinite it's so deep that runs from the physical all the way up that what you do down here has spiritual effects above and those spiritual effects uh reverberate back down here that's not what changed my life but that's very important to know what changed my life and this is one of the 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 spiritual proverb the Baal Shem told the Baal Shem comes and says know what's above is from knowing yourself if you want to know what's going on above i.e Hashem which is all the existence you want to understand the consciousness, so to speak, of the entire universe, all existence, it's through knowing yourself. Which means that, if a, that basically it's an advertisement for self-awareness. The person understands himself, and he understands that he's really, you know, this connected tube of infinity, and almost a mirror image, the, the proverbial uh, um, image of God. So then that means a person has a, 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 this two-way relationship that, if I know myself, I'm going to understand Hashem better in his infinite oneness. If I can understand Hashem better, the way he manifests himself in the world, I can understand myself better. That's step number one. That changed my life. Because I guess growing up, I always had this sense that self-awareness is sort of one of those big keys in life. Right. And that just crystallized. It's very deep. It's very spiritual. It's very infinite, compressed into the finiteness of one's own experience. And it's very motivating to say, if I know myself, I actually going to connect to Hashem and ultimate reality much more. And if I know that ultimately reality much more, in my case, through learning Torah, living Torah, then I can understand myself much better. So it validated for you that there was a religious value in something that you felt conviction for throughout your life. Right, but uh, yes, but it took it to, uh, it was it, it, the thing that changed my life, yeah, yeah, you're right when you say it that way, but it wasn't, it You're was saying it's more, I don't, I don't mean to, to, to slug no, it up no, or anything. No, but... no, no, it wasn't, just, the thing that changed my life wasn't just that, it was like, oh yeah, I knew that all along and it confirms it. It was, it took it, it like went from checkers to three-dimensional chess that, okay. oh, Awareness isn't just like a practical tool here of you know emotional intelligence or whatever, which it is, but but it's this very deep thing of connecting to ultimate reality on a practical way of looking at it, as opposed to like thinking, I oh, just do this mitzvah and do that mitzvah, and there's God out there. It's really a you know a, a, a manifestation sort of of, of infinity, really. Wow. It's very powerful, but it, practically speaking, it does say be self aware, right? Okay, great, awesome. So, you had two more, okay. 
two. So the other one is uh, is uh, there's a, a story of the Baal Shem told. It's all about the Baal Shem. I didn't even realize that when I was writing it down. Is the Baal Shem tells a story. It's a famous one of these Chassidish stories. I want to basically bottom line. He says to his Chassidim, "Come with me. I want to show you uh, something special." They walk up the hillside in the middle of you know the hillside, and they see in the clearing. They see uh, uh, you know from the distance. They watch a shepherd boy with a bunch of sheep because that's what shepherds do. That's why they're called shepherds. They herd the sheep. Right. Anyway, so. Uh, a clever name for them, and they uh, and so they watch the shepherd, and the shepherd like gets the sheep doing what they need to be doing. And he looks up to heaven, he starts, you know, yelling, says, Hashem, you're so big, you're so great. I'm just a little ignoramus. What am I? I'm nothing, I don't know anything, but I what can I do for you? But I can sing my shepherd's song. He starts singing a shepherd's song, and he exhausts himself singing shepherd's song. And then he says, He falls down, he gets up, Rabbi Shalom, you know, God, what can I do? I'm so you're so big, I'm so I'm, I, I don't know anything, I can dance for you. And he, each step of the way, he dances, he sings. He 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 blows out his horn, and then the last thing is he says, he says to Hashem, like, "What can I do for you?" And he, he says, "Today, the local landlord gave out a penny to all the peasants for his birthday. I can give you this." He threw the penny in the air, and the story goes that the Baal Shem student saw a hand come through the clouds and grab the penny and pull it up into the cloud. And the Baal Shem said to the students, "You've just seen somebody worship Hashem with all his heart, all his mind, and all his resources." So when I heard that story. And I was Harvard, you know, law, law firm. It's like, no, 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 no. You have to learn and you have to be a, a scholar and you have to be, you have to be, you have to be on top of your game. No, you can't do that. And Roshan, I realized that it means that you just have to be completely there with your heart. In, in relationship, it's about the heart. And that's one of the lines of the Gemara that I was going to tell you. There's another one that changed my life. The Shem wants the heart. So realize, and I say to my students, when you get married, your husband's going to want your heart. Or what are the girls? You're, you want your husband's heart. And when a person's in the heart connection, it doesn't matter if they're a scholar or an ignoramus or if they're really talented this or that. Just the heart. Be as completely dedicated and committed and into yourself and into the relationship. That was very, uh, again, a life-changing perspective because it really forced me to challenge all my actions. Let me unpack that for a second. So what you're saying is, because you were on a pathway away from, you know, your legal career and towards being a Torah scholar. And, but what you're saying is that when you heard that story and it told you that, you know, Rahman Alibaboy, that God wants your heart, that what God is looking for is, is, is authenticity and realness and being yourself that actually freed you to be on the path that you were on already. But, but it, somehow that changed something for you. Because no, because if I, because what ends up happening, when a person leaves the, comes to the Jewish world, you separate. You, you just substitute cum laude with Talmud Chacham, Lahabdil. You separate. It just becomes a replacement. Okay, you were a big macher in Wall Street. Now be a big macher in the base medrash. Or you, that that tends to be maybe more in the Chazaradish circles. But it's a little strong. It, it, it doesn't matter. Whatever circle you're in, right. it could be you know whatever that whatever that circle holds up as. A, you want to achieve excellence in whatever you're doing. You want to be the best. You want to be the top man. But I, that story ruffled my feathers because at the time I had bought into that concept of achievement and standard in, in, in community standard and that story represents the idea that you don't have to do that and you sh and the Baal Shem is saying to his students who are probably skeptical at the time like this that shepherd is greatness and they're like what, how do you get his greatness he's a fool he's a singer a dancer and he doesn't know anything that's not meeting up the community standards and Baal Shem's point is to be an iconoclast in that regard and say yeah you're right community's wrong and the only thing that matters is the, the thing that really matters behind it all is the heart connection. How dedicated, as you said, Rahman Liboy, to the ultimate goal. 
learning, being a scholar, being this, what's it for if it's not for something, let's say, overarching? And so that 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 forced me to to, I mean, it didn't it forced me and and and, and it freed me from the the conditioning that says you have to be, you know, a hyperachiever according to the, com the communal standards. You know, standards might be a little bit detached from the underlying reality of, of what's your goal? To get close to Hashem. Not to be a Tamar Hachum, not right. to be a rich man. Right, so, so you're saying that the, the hyperachiever gets, gets uh, directed towards what really is meaningful, which is giving your whole heart to, to God or to whatever you're dedicated to, as opposed to some kind mm -hmm. of standard that you're trying to meet. Right, so you, called, you said the hyperachiever. So I, don't, I, 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 I could get mixed up by that because hyperachievement sounds like get all A's. Right. Get, that's that one. That's not, that's not the point. If that is a fulfillment of your potential, you're doing it because that's the way you manifest your whole heart. Evolve it. That's great. Right. But if it's just community says you have to do that, that's not going to work very well. Right, but in a certain way, the, then the hyperachiever becomes the person who's doing. Meaning the in the in the in the in the story, I think that's what's so beautiful about the paradigm. The shepherd is the hyperachiever. Right? Success. Call it success. <laughs> success. No, you're right. Right, right. Success is the goal. That's what success means. But the goal is the full out heart connection to a show. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So I, one more question. Great. It's a very good trick to, I say to my students a lot. You want to be a hyper cheater? You want to be perfect? Be perfect in the right, you know, what this, the right thing is. I have a better line than that, but right. trust me. So, <laughs> Hyperachievement in the real goal, not the societally imposed goal. Right. So, um, so one more question that kind of relates to getting to know you on a, on a PME level. So I asked you to think about an episode in your life, something that happened to you, something that gave you a sense of permission to have hope or a sense of optimism. I, I would imagine that abandoning, uh, you know, a burgeoning legal career and going to seek out spirituality in Jerusalem, there has to be a sense of optimism that even going and doing what you did uh, in your schooling career, and then even leaving, you know, in your bio it talked about leaving a certain institution where you had achieved a certain measure of success, and then saying, I need to share the, with the world. I need to go out and kind of share, you know, I need to bring, what manifest what I have to the table. So what, what gave you that sense of optimism? What gave you a sense of hope? Yeah, that, um, I mean, I, I, the first, the first, thought is that I, I did Brook Hashem have um probably not just relatively good parents uh and family but unusually good parents and family growing up a supportive family situation uh feeling encouraged by my parents I was not a hyper achieving kid I was good in school I, I pretty much just watched tv a lot but I just had that sense of you know whatever you want to put your mind to you can do and and uh, optimistic, uh, even grandparents in my head saying, "It's like you know, if, if you think you, if you think good, it'll be good." Um, so, and these weren't even old country people; they weren't saying in Yiddish, it was in English. But so that helps a lot. You can't teach that. It's a it's a, it's a gift uh, that uh, that I was able to at least have a sense of of the ability to feel that there's a tomorrow and that there's a where you can fail. So I tell at least my students, a person does need to feel safe. They need to know they can fail. Um, I, I point out in the Shemot Esrei, it's one of the first brokers that we have is we can do tshuva and we can be forgiven. And a person in a relationship needs to feel that. So that, I had that from my family. The ability to know it's okay to be, to, to, to mess up, and it's okay to try, and it's okay to try and not succeed over here and try something else. But one area that if I had to have an event, it's an interesting backdoor event, but I would figure at least this, 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 is, a, this is a nice lesson probably in this generation especially. When I was in elementary school, 
everybody hated me. Okay, I was the kid. There was I, I wasn't the kid. There is no such thing as me. I was historic. I, for some crazy reason, was phenomenally competitive in gym class. Okay, I wasn't the best athlete. Pretty good athlete, but in fifth grade, fourth grade, literally, I would scream and yell at anybody who made a mistake, anybody dropped the dodgeball, anybody who didn't throw the kickball fast enough. I'd yell at them, I'd yell and scream at them. That's nuts, isn't it? Not how to win friends and influence people. Like it influences them. And uh, I mean, there'd be like the girls who are sitting in the back, like drawing their drawings and, and, and playing with their stickers or whatever. And uh, I'd be yelling at them, why don't you get the ball? I don't know. I don't know why my parents didn't give me serious therapy. It wasn't popular back then. So <laughs> by fifth grade, fifth grade, literally the entire elementary school hated me or was indifferent enough to like not like me, but not actually want to chase after me. So one day, I got chased around the entire elementary school campus by a mob of my peers, okay? And I remember, oh no, that was like one day. And then another day in gym class, uh, there was a, I had a fight, somehow an argument and the gym teacher yelled at me. I was all the rest of the time and I yelled at him or whatever and, and maybe one of the kids and I kicked the wall and I hurt my foot as I kicked the wall in anger. So that was stupid. And when I ran outside, I remember standing again alone in the, in the entryway of the school where there's two doors, the outside door and the inside door. There's a little whatever alcohol foyer, as they call it, I think. And I sat there by myself crying. I was kind of banging the wall, and I said to myself, this is all your fault. This is all your fault, and you know it. You're an idiot. You're a jerk. You yell at people. You're crazy. You're, 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 you, everyone has a right to hate you. I had zero negativity against everybody else. I knew it was my own doing. I knew that I, was, I couldn't control myself for whatever reason. But I took that moment. I mean, I knew it all along, but it was crystallized. It's my responsibility, and I'm going to get out of it. I, I know that this is my responsibility. I got to stop acting when I'm acting and I got to learn how to win back the trust and friendship of some of my students, my peers. And that's my goal. In that moment, I just decided that this is, I mean, I knew it, but it was clear. This is my fault. I'm not mad at anybody else. It's not the gym teacher's fault. It's my parents' fault. It's not the lack of therapy fault. So that, for me, that taking control was a very optimistic moment because I, I was able to say, it's the world doesn't treat me the way it's treating me for accident. It's not because this, the fates are against me. It's because of what I did and I deserve it. And I have done the ability and power to, as a guy, well, I mean, at the time, just to get out of it. Right. Wow. So, so what was, that's a, that's a beautiful moment. Um, what you're saying is that what was the most optimistic for you or what gave you this permission was to, to really make the decision to stop looking at everybody else and blaming everybody else and really take responsibility for the part and the role that you're playing and set yourself the goal of doing whatever you could to make amends for what you had done wrong. Right. But, but, but Mr. Therapist, I was never engaged in blaming other people. Okay. I mean, in terms of the way they treated me, I yelled at them in gym class. Right. That was their fault. It was their fault. They were dropping the ball. Right. I, that, that's their fault. Who cares? So I didn't blame anybody for the treatment of me. When people were yelling at me, wanted to beat me up, running around the school, whatever it was, I never once said people are mean. I never once, even up until that point, it was just that point that it crystallized that need for me to say enough already. So it wasn't that you were blaming people before that? No, it wasn't that. It was just crystallizing the responsibility aspect of it and saying like enough already. But the optimism was that, that I... I realized it had gotten to a point where it had to stop. Not like an addict, I don't know. And I just said, but it was always, in, it was me. So it's optimistic is that I did it. 
no one else's fault. I did this. And then that means if I can, if I can, uh, if I can destroy, I can build. And it just crystallized at that moment that feeling of that I have, I, I, since I did, I am in control. It was my own choices that did it. So my own choices that get me out of it. Right. A little bit of Rabbi Nachman in there. Sneaking Probably in. Probably a lie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, so transitioning. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, it's, um, so transitioning to kind of the second half of the interview is to really think about like practically things that you do to kind of be excellent and be yourself and what you've picked up along the way. Um, so I asked you to think about a daily practice or a habit that you have that in retrospect you feel kind of contributes to your personal success. Maybe it's someone that no one else knows or maybe it seems it seemed at first or even can seem to other people to be minor, but really kind of it makes a big difference to you in your life. Other than drugs, right? Other than drugs. Um, you can edit that out if you want. Okay. Uh, 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 I'm, that was a hard one for me. And really it's the same, almost the same thing as number seven, depending, I guess, what number five answer is. Uh, that I'm not, a, I'm not, I mean, right now, of course, Judaism does provide that, that setup for davening full time in the morning, a mikvah. Uh, but for me, other than that, you know, you read these articles about people, the successful people. What do you do every day? I take three minutes to write a thank you. I, I'm not that guy. Okay. The only thing I come up with that I do that I would say is a conscious thing is it's really a continuation. Of some of the things I said earlier is I'm very much into self-talk, very consciously self-talking. We'd call it now davening, but it's also to me. So I'm talking to Shem um, every minute when I'm walking, walking. Now, I, I sometimes have to stop talking to Hashem so I can dive into Hashem. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking to him saying, I'm it's a lot of self, uh, again, that self-awareness, self, um, um, accounting, uh, reproach, self-reproach. Okay, I blew that one. I blew that one. Give me another chance. I blew that one. What's wrong with me? I blew that one. Give me another chance. Um, today, I got to do this. I got to do this. Is, let me figure out what strength I need to bear you know, to get this accomplished. Just a lot of it maybe today it'd be a person including might be it's just someone who sits down at his desk every day for five minutes and plans out the day on paper and thinks so i just do that in my head i think about what what area of my life i'm succeeding in failing in where my character traits are are, are being being challenged and i'm succeeding at failing and where i'm needing that help from above or for myself to to have a successful hour day whatever it is and that's like an integrated dialogue between yourself and yourself and god I mean, when you say like it's a, you say what do you mean by integrated? Meaning, it's like you're saying you're the the way that you're describing it, um, is like that. There's a you're almost like switching off. You're talking to yourself. You're talking to God. There's kind of like an, an ongoing dialogue between the, the three of yeah, you, so to there. speak. All right. Yeah. 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 Is that how it is? I, I, and it is. And, and so again, I don't know your listeners. If a person wants to take God out of it, God forbid, it's just the self talk. But the problem is. The problem is, if a person, I tell my students this, if you listen to, if you would hear myself talk, you would think I'm transgressing every, I'm, every rule in the book about positive self-talk and self-image. I'll say things, you stink, you're terrible, what's wrong with you, you're so messed up, I, I, you, 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 I, I hate myself, I hate myself. Now, I know when I say that, and I probably do this when I was younger also, that's again, it's self-awareness. I don't really hate myself, I love myself. 
I just hate the fact that my lower self be my greater self, and I end up hating what became me that last hour. If I got impatient, or I, or if I, if I, uh, you know, overslept, or I overate, anything that I would consider to be a failure in my self uh, development. So you hear the inner text, and it would sound like I'm, you know, whatever, ready for uh, high level clinicians and and and, and medication. So it's just a person has to learn how to have self-talk with reproach, but they should be happy that that's the thing that if, if they're good, I'm good, and I just didn't perform today. So you get an athlete, they're like, we'll say, I just I just bombed today. So I, I know I'm an all-star today. I just bombed. I didn't didn't have it or a performer. I just hit the notes today, but I know I'm great. So but if you hear them that moment, they're like, you're the worst. You just give up another home run. What kind of pitch do you think you are? What kind of piano player do you think you are? not really you can't it's not it's not it's only skin deep in that but it, it's just make sure a person is checking what am i doing how can i how can I become the better self that i want to be a lot of people i think have a hard time with inner talk because they really believe the negative talk they're going to generate about themselves. right from my experience so how, how did you so, was there something you did to be able to develop that so that it was healthier and less like pathological and destructive so again i did have a good sense of self growing up i wasn't i wasn't i worked very much on my self-confidence relative to others but I always internally knew I was a good person. I'm from my parents and just myself deep down. That's probably why I came back in religion is that I just felt this deep, deep core of goodness and purity in me. I think most people have had it. Even people have gone through lots of negative experiences. I say to my students, there seems to be a resonation, resonance with it. That you, let's say at night, you're lying in bed at three in the morning and you, and you eat, not definitely 2.30, and 2.45. And a person's lying there at night and they feel this sense of, I feel so good and pure inside and even they'll say to themselves something like why does my mother not treat me well well why does every why are my friends not treat me well? or why don't i treat myself well why do i keep doing this to myself but somewhere in there a person will have that that connection with that inner good and inner purity so i have that early in my life early enough in my life to always have the basis of i'm good i might act like a schmendrick like that story i told you in fifth grade you're an idiot you're a schmendrick you're a totally messed up yelling at all these kids and they all hate you and they should hate you but deep down i'm good i'm just really messing up and i gotta figure out why i'm messing up and i gotta figure out how to change what i'm doing but so that i'm still good i just have to un unwind it so that it's once a person has that because the self-talk is very positive but a lot of people turn their self-talk into like just the same voice that their mother put in their head that's abusive let's say god forbid her and, and to really have a different way of uh, of experiencing themselves to be able to say, I just want to figure out how to how to how to actualize what I need to actualize, and and like review the game film of what happened five minutes ago. Like why that happened, how they get how did my button just get pushed, why did I react the way I reacted, what the heck is wrong with me that I reacted that way? But okay, let's figure it out and work on it. Right. So you're saying that um, that there's this that inner space inside of yourself that that loves yourself and respects yourself, and you know that that there's a sense of purity. So what what you're what you're imparting is that that was something that you came into contact with as a very young child, as a result of your upbringing in a, you know, in a, in a positive and loving space. And that allowed you to be there and to, have, to be in contact with that. But that in order for someone to build this balanced self dialogue and dialogue with, with God that allows you to be um, effectively tough on yourself, right? In order to do that, you have to really draw a connection with that innermost purest part of yourself yes that in our space i think that I, that's why i try to try to find some way of relating to everybody's experience so it's not based on did you have good parents because then people are in trouble 
So I think everybody, even, I think somewhere, most people, maybe it's through a meditation exercise, you brought back to that time when they were one years old or whatever. It's like, yeah, I remember feeling very pure at one point before all the negativity came into my life. But yeah, I could, if a person be brought to that and anchor it, however that would be done, um, that, that's, uh, that's, I guess, the, 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 the anchor to the whole experience. That's a key. More Rabbi Nachman. Okay, we're going, we're going all the way through here. It's really, really powerful. <laughs> okay, so uh, if you had to pick, I asked you to think about one thing, about one relationship, and this question's kind of, uh, I think, interesting. I, I wrote it, so it's, uh, it's self-serving to say it's interesting, but it doesn't have to be the most important relationship, but one thing about one relationship that makes that relationship awesome and work, and what are the steps you take to foster that thing, and what are the steps you take to foster that relationship? So what just came to me now is, uh, I mean, listen, Mr. Poznanski, the only relationship that fits that answer is your marriage. If it doesn't fit, if that, if that, if that relationship is not marriage, we're in trouble, because any other relationship is not as, oh, my best friend, break your best friend doesn't push your buttons and challenge a person like the marriage. So if there's a person out there is married, right. if they're not married, they have another relationship, but uh, the general rule is one. So you can is I just thought of it right now as you asked is is the the fact that it's I have a different answer, but this came to me right now is is um it's um uh, it's 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 non-revocable whatever you want to call it it's it's indivisible it's it's commitment that's it once a person realizes it doesn't have to be this relationship once a person realizes or at least approaches as much as possible of course the person has to be safe in other relationships. When a person realizes a relationship is non-negotiable, so that creates a tremendous psychological impetus to make it work. This is we're here together. We're here for eternity. This is going to work. And I actually, I've done studies I read in the in the, like sales when a person can return a, a, a product to the store versus they can't return it to the store. It's all sales final. It turns out like after six months, the people that they all sales final like their product much more than the person who bought it with the idea that they could always return it and never end up going around getting around to returning it but they still have it right. when it's commitment psychologically we see the positive in it and we make it work so that that that's what makes the, the relationship uh my wife i'd call it awesome it's, it's hard work but is the fact that it's that so you can a person can choose to make other relationships that way with friends Obviously, business associates a little bit more uh, tricky, but the more a person looks at every relationship as as a sense of like this is commitment. We don't that means squabbles and differences of opinion. Those are meant to be worked through. I have this with my rebbeim over the years. Lots of heart to heart, toe to toe conversation between him and me, and with him and his wife and my wife. Very bukhashim, but we are you know tight because of it. And the other thing, just that needs to be said, you can pick up on either one if you want, is uh, really it's time. That's not, I'm not saying anything that's a chiddish, a novelty, but there's no way, and that's why this generation with the phones and the texting, I don't know how people are normal. I, didn't, I don't have that. I have it, but I don't have it. Like, because there's no time. There's no, it's so hard to get quality time in the world today. So quality time, it doesn't have to be five hours of time. It could be 25 minutes of quality time. And right. I see that, and I'm not good at this, but I'm, I don't, I'm not, because it's, I don't have a lot of friends on a very intense level because of this. I don't know how to have enough time to build the relationships that I'd like to have um, on an intense level, you know, deep level because it takes time. Mm. So that's very powerful, very meaningful. And uh, I, I really appreciate the answer. What you're saying is, or what I took from it is that what makes those, our relationships so awesome 
and this is particularly reflected in that spousal kind of husband-wife relationship uh, for probably so many reasons, is when it's, you know, final sale. When you're in all the way, you're in with both feet. Uh, it's unconditional. Um, and, and then uh, making it a priority, making time to be together, to be like with one another and to making time for the relationship to foster, which is hard today. I mean, we're, it's amazing because we can, I can talk to you, you're in Israel and I'm here and, and there's so much opportunity for connectedness. And yet that just makes us busier and busier and busier and in some ways more unconnected. But one of the things I liked about what you said is that it's not hours and hours and hours necessarily that are needed. I mean, those are needed as well, but even to make that 25 minutes or 20 minutes or to take a walk together, or, you know, to really set aside time for bonding and connecting um, because this is an unconditional relationship. I am in this relationship. I'm committed to this relationship. And that's what yeah, makes exactly. those relationships awesome. And time's well spent. <laughs> right. the most important. Very few things are so committed to. So what better place to spend some time than there? Right. Wow. And that can really be reflected, like you said, that could be reflected in any relationship, but obviously it's most uh, applicable and, and meaningful sometimes in a spousal relationship. Um, it's interesting, a, a parent-child relationship is 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 kind of has a, uh, a dynamic aspect to that. It's like a different dynamic because it's a, it's more of that, uh, um, it's, it's not as bilateral as a spousal relationship, right? So it's not as, you're not on, as, on, as much on equal ground because you're, you know, the father, your parents older and the child younger, child's reliant upon the, the parent. But, but I can see how when you make that a priority, when you make your, sense of commitment to it, your sense of unconditional commitment and time commitment to it, that's really what's going to give it a, an intense level of meaningfulness. Right, and then let's add to that. The reason it's different is because, is like we say, the marriage, the spousal relationship was chosen. It's easier to be committed to when that was chosen. Right. Whereas the specific having children presumably is chosen, right. but the child specifically, him or herself, is not chosen. So it's true in the beginning, it sounds like there doesn't, when a child, the children are young, they're stuck with the parent, and the parent's kind of stuck with the kid, although the parent theoretically could abandon the children. So for the parent, it is, you know, unilateral. But if a person is thinking, well, I'm committed to this, I want to be committed to this relationship with my child, and one day they're going to grow up and have the full free will to choose that relationship mm. and be independent of the state. Dad, I'm out, God forbid. Or Dad, I want to come running to you. I, I, I want this relationship even... So a parent who's, who knows him before is like, this is still the same level of commitment, and I want to do the same types of things in my commitment to this relationship that will foster a reciprocal commitment, and I want my child to eventually have the free will to choose to walk away, beautiful. and then, of course, choose to be committed to it equally when we're adults. Wow, that's beautiful. So as we, as we foster a sense of and an ability for autonomy in our children, that actually creates the opportunity and the vulnerability for them to lean into the relationship and for us to lean in. That's, that's really beautiful. I like that a lot. Okay, so you're doing all sorts of cool things. You're getting up in front of people. You're speaking. You're, 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 you've accomplished things. You finally made it. You achieved at the, the, the communal expectation without even caring about it, right? So you're a, a Torah scholar and a teacher, and, and you're all these things. So the question that I asked was, what's a, a practice or a mantra that helps you to stay grounded? Um, you know, you talked in the beginning about being an authentic person, being your most, your most authentic self. So what helps you to do that? I mean, now, now I understand what you meant by grounded. Uh, um, so again, the, the, the practice and the mantra, the practice is to have mantras. The practice is to have that self-talk and then to summarize 
the tools or their clarities of the self-talk into a uh, into a, a phrase or two that a person can hold on to. Sometimes there are for certain periods of time. I'm just saying I'm trying to work on being more patient. So I might have a mantra in my head it's like just wait, just wait, just wait. Or um, I'm trying to think of something, uh, whatever tool or trick it is. I'm trying to work on something that's a Jewish thing. And there's a person, um, a friend of mine, or an acquaintance of mine, whose son is not well. He should be well. So in order to build up spiritual merit for that son. I, in his name, if I'm tempted to do something I'm not really supposed to do, right, like eat, you know, ham and cheese sandwich, don't jump there, um, I will, uh, I will say in my mind, in the merit of, you know, his son, I'm not going to do this thing over here. I'm going to, you know, read another, you know, Torah idea, or I'm going to not waste time, uh, whatever it is, okay, I'll use a, use a, a tool that motivates, usually saying some sort of priority, focus um, to help stay grounded into where I'm trying to get to. Um, another one that, that I'm trying to put into my mind right now is this idea that in these crazy times, a person needs to focus on on uh, uh, the truth or where they're headed to, not get distracted by a lot of the noise in the street. I'll let everyone decide how they want to fill in that blank in terms of what they want to hold on to. Um, so uh, one of my rabbi, Rav Nachum Chaim, which was the Rosh Hashim of that lady, Israel big influence in my life, taught me a lot about Hasidus. So he told the boy in the name of the Kofis Chaim that at the end of days, he's going to throw down a rope from heaven. That person needs to grab onto the rope, which basically says they want to grab onto the, you know, the truth and understanding and clarity amidst the kind of the chaos that we're seeing around us. I'm trying, I'm, I'm working on this mantra now, just keep saying to myself, grab the rope, grab the rope, grab the rope. You know, this is a very big thing, like sports, psychology, whatever, is to have a, a mantra that focuses and motivates. So, but, but then you add, so that, that's, Whatever that would be. And the other thing is, as you mentioned, the word grounded. So I guess now I understand it meant when you gave it over, it sounded like was this idea of, uh, you know, the person might get a little bit fly, you know, carried away and, 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 rel- and, and celebrating his accomplishments. So you need to kind of have a little coming down. So uh, I have some very good friends who, uh, who know the, these ideas that you're bringing from Hasidus or Judaism that um, another idea is just to be very, very humble and to, to realize that. The tool is always realize if somebody else had what I had, they'd be a million times better than me. Mm. And if I had what someone else would be, I, I tell my I tell my friend all the time, if I had your tests, I'd be in the gutter right now. I do not know how you're functioning. And I know if you had my situation, you'd be ten thousand times further ahead than me. There's no doubt about it. I would never I I crumble under the weight of your tests. And if you had what I had, you'd be and it's true. I know it's true. So a, a person another a friend of mine says you have to be an Ama Aras Shem Shaman. You have to be an ignoramus. For the sake of truth, let's call it in, in secular terms. Just be who you are, whatever you are, and just do it. Just do it the right way. Don't try to be still highfalutin. Just as simple as you can keep it, and those things keep me grounded. Amazing, incredible. Okay, so uh, so I asked you, uh, you know, so part of any spiritual path is, um, you know, you hit you hit uh, struggles, challenges, um, burnout, um, kind of just feel exhausted, uh, maybe. Uh, and I'm not, not projecting on you, but, <laughs> you know, we all kind of have emotional downs. So what, what are some steps that you take to kind of recharge or to handle those emotional downs? So it happens to be that being a teacher, the, the schedule is set up that way, that there's a summertime where the, all of a sudden the business goes away. So right. that's like a two-month decompression chamber. So I, that's just built into my life. Could be if someone could try to build that into their life. That's good. People working from home now, it's a lot easier, maybe. But I, it's nothing, nothing. You know, I didn't have no real exercise. I try to exercise. Uh, have good music to listen to. You choose your type of music. 
day. I got my Jewish stuff that I'm going to try to listen to. Be goofing off, spend time with the family, or just goofing off. Whether you have a family or not to goof off with, to just take it down a notch, not to be so serious, not take myself seriously, um, to be, to allow myself to not be so intense, let's say, with time management. It's okay to sleep a little bit late. It might be okay to just, like, you know, fall asleep in the, but I would, I don't have a chaise lounge, but something that equivalent to uh, give yourself a few liberties. Relax, relax. You know, that's what I mean. Be perfect. It's okay to be perfect about being imperfect. It's okay not to be perfect. To be perfectly imperfect is what a person needs to do because that's part of perfection because you can't be perfect unless you allow yourself to be imperfect. Huh? So those are the kinds of things, you know, uh, I don't want to tell you the advantage that I do because uh, that's not, that's not, uh, that's not good for this program, but right. um, I'll, I'll do things that are for me. Well, if I, off camera I, I for that. Yeah, we can talk about you know, we got drinks. Let's show you a few of the embarrassments if you want. So uh, I have that on my list: exercise, music, music, goofing off, sinning. <laughs> uh, but uh, seriously, folks. Um, so things like things like I, I don't do this. I could do it, but things like for me, it's a waste of time. But to do a crossword puzzle, Sunday New York Times crossword puzzle. So you're using your brain. But it's just like I'm the off position from all the intensity of life. So it's like a, it's a hybrid. It's still, it's still stimulating playing chess. Not my thing, but to play chess. A musical instrument would be another thing. Um, for me, it's uh, I happen to like to read about current events. To a fault. To a fault. It's too much. Or um, I'll read like sort of touchy-feely psychology articles that people like, you know, uh, Menachem Posnansky might write. I haven't seen any, but like in a Mishpacha magazine or something like that. Like, the, you know, the soft stuff. So those types of things that are just are fostered relaxation. It's not hard for me. That's actually the problem. Is it, for me, it's it's the hard part is to actually drive up the intensity because I enjoy all of these more softer, more relaxed parts of life because they can be very interesting and very recharging. The recharge always becomes the, the main thing at two faults, but those are some of the ideas. Amazing. Okay, so thank yeah. you so much for joining us. It was really, really incredible. Right. I really appreciate it. It was it was incredible. Thank you so much. It's really incredible to be here. No, 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 anybody say you're a much better host than I thought you'd be. <laughs> Consciously is a project of the Living Room, which is a division of our place, New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tsipora Basravaro. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky and produced by Chaim Kohn, with editing by Eitan Korenblum and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Shmaya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback and questions. So please feel free to email us at consciously62 at gmail.com or on our Instagram and Facebook pages.